As Mike said, we're going to finish the whole book and do the whole chapter today. Uh, doing this because I don't want to be in Titus for two or three years. <clears throat> There's a great preacher who did that at this church, and I just don't know that I can... I'm talking about John Avery, who spent, what, four years in the book of Ruth? Is that right? So... <clears throat> so Many of you may not know that I did not grow up in church, and when I was a teenager, I was uh, an unbeliever and even an atheist, and I worked at a local restaurant here in town, and I always worked on Sunday because Sunday was just one of our busiest days, and, and they needed me there, and I liked working mornings, so if I worked both the weekends, they would let me work mornings and do breakfast, and I enjoyed that. But I remember one Sunday, there was a waitress who came back to the kitchen, and she was, she was in tears, and she was devastated, because she had been belittled by a man because she had gotten his order wrong. And this man was a pastor in a local church here in Morganton. And as an unbeliever and an atheist, I knew that. I knew who this man was. And by his deeds of impatience... Anger, hostility, lack of compassion and pride, I would have never let that man speak the gospel to me because he had really ruined that by his attitude. Now, to be fair, be a little fair here, this could have been some momentary thing like a singular outburst and not a part of his ongoing character. But it does make the point that as Christians... We can have the right words, we can have the best arguments, we can have great Reformed theology, and we can even speak the gospel in a winsome way. But if we don't show courtesy and humility to those who are outside of the church, they are not going to hear our verbal proclamation of the gospel. Now here in Titus chapter 3, Paul is going to command us to be ready for every good work. And he's going to want us to do it with humility, with meekness, and he uses the word courtesy. That's what I'm kind of playing off of in my sermon, courtesy towards all people. And he wants us to do this towards all people because we represent a God who has shown us mercy that we could never measure. He has shown us kindness that cannot be fathomed. If you'll look in your bulletin, you'll see the outline. And those of you who, who like linear structure, I apologize. I'm taking the chapter out of order. Uh, we're going to jump to verse 9 in our second point, and then I'm going to do the verses 3 through 8 for the third point. So just be aware of that. Don't worry, we'll go through the, through the whole chapter, so... And Eden Grace, I will keep it a little short. <laughs> that was a joke prayer request that she put in this morning. <laughs> okay, let us read the word of God in Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let your people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Paul wants to remind the church at Crete to be courteous to their fellow Cretans. And the essence of this courtesy is a heart that promotes peace over division. We are to be kind and peace-loving in a world that usually is not kind or peace-loving. And the first and perhaps the most difficult way that Paul tells us to be courteous is by being submissive to rulers and authorities. And I spoke this morning in Sunday school on empires being the Antichrist and told my Sunday school class that I was going to, in in my sermon, tell them to obey authority, so kind of balancing things, and they said they were going to boo and hiss me when I did this. so. So be on the lookout for those people. Now... I kind of understand that reaction because because I can feel the divisiveness of our politics and our government so much that, that I can see how this is becoming more and more of a difficult command to heed from the Apostle Paul. But it's not as though it was easier in Crete when Paul wrote this letter to be submissive to authorities. The uh, Greek historian Polybius has this to say about Crete. He said it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Can you sympathize with that? But yet Paul still says obey and submit. And we live in America where we are free to speak our minds. We are free to to criticize our government. And I'm happy that we have that freedom. But I wonder sometimes, because we have the freedom, do we sometimes criticize too much? Do we get to where we enjoy the criticism for the sake of criticizing? 
And I'm not saying that it's wrong to exercise your rights as an American. I totally believe in, in, in being active as an American and loving your rights in this country. The Apostle Paul actually showed us an example of that in Acts chapter 22. He used his Roman citizenship to get himself out of a difficult situation. So it's not wrong to use the means of government uh, for your own good. We do have rights. But I'm going to give us three difficult questions to think about in our hearts that are pertaining to our relationship with our government. Now, when I give you these questions, just know these are questions that I had to ask myself too. So these are not easy questions. The first question, am I submitting to the will of God as the one who has ordained the government that I am under? Now, this is a hard thing for us to swallow when our taxes are raised when they talk about taking our guns away, when they try to limit our speech, uh, we have rights. And we don't think about God being the one who's over the ones who are giving us and taking away those rights. And, and it's easy to forget this. this. This is often true. God might want us to suffer under government, to give him glory. And also to strengthen our sanctification and our endurance because suffering works endurance. I don't like suffering, but sometimes God might want that for us. Second question. Do I forget how much worse it would be if I did not have any civil government? Paul teaches in Romans 13 that God is the one who ordains governments and he ordains them for good. And the purpose of government is that they, they wield the sword for what purpose? To protect its citizens and punish criminals. And so we have safety in government. And in America, we might not always feel like our, our government has our best interest in mind. Maybe they're not protecting us well enough. But consider how little safety and peace you would have if you did not have even the worst government that America has ever produced. Third question, and this is probably the most important question. Do we remember that our government is made up of people who have eternal souls? We should never allow ourselves to become so hardened against those who rule over us that we do not yearn to see them embrace Jesus Christ. And I'm personally guilty. I did this yesterday. After I had already written this sermon, I did notice I did this yesterday, of complaining about government and talking about politics more than we pray for the salvation of our leaders. So <clears throat> we all need to work to balance pursuing our rights as citizens. I'm not telling you to give up your rights but also appreciate and submit to the government that God has placed us under. Now, Paul says that we should go beyond government and show courtesy to all people. In verse 2 he says that we are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. 
Paul wants us all to strive to live to be a peacemaker. Practicing simple things like don't speak evil of your boss, don't speak evil of your co-workers, don't chew out that poor trainee who is in the grocery store checkout line and bring them to tears because they are taking half an hour to check your groceries out. Simply put, be a person of humility. Be a person of peace and consideration and courtesy. Do you guys remember this? I don't know if, I don't know if they teach this in driving school anymore. You remember something called a courtesy lane change? Anybody ever heard of that? Okay. I don't, there's lots of driving laws that I don't know that they even teach anymore. At least it doesn't look like it. Uh, I digress. Uh, but in a courtesy lane change, when you're in the right lane and you're on interstate, what are you supposed to do? You move to the left lane if the guy going 100 miles an hour will let you, and you get in the left lane so the oncoming traffic can merge off the ramp on the interstate, and that's, that's courtesy. You're not really breaking a law if you don't do it, but you're showing courtesy and allowing people to to continue the flow of traffic. And there's lots of simple ways like this that we can show courtesy. The world isn't courteous, but we are not of the world. And our work should display a courteous love of neighbor instead of a survival of the fittest selfishness. Now, Paul wants us to encourage peace in the church by extending kindness, but he also emphasizes the need to avoid certain things in order to maintain a peaceful environment in the church. And there are certain hard things that Paul says we have to do to keep peace in the church. And this brings us to our second point, avoiding discourtesy. So beginning in verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When Paul says avoid foolish controversies, he's not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. We should stand firm on the vital doctrines of the Bible. And we should be willing to defend those things. But there is a passion that some people have for controversies. They love to stir up division over the most trivial things. And who's the best example of this in the Bible? Well, of course, it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees love these trivial debates and controversies. They got upset because the disciples were crushing grain in their hands and throwing it in their mouths on the Sabbath day. They were working to feed themselves on the Sabbath day. They even, they even judged Jesus because of all the terrible things. He healed somebody on the Sabbath day. That type of questioning and that type of debating is not seeking after godliness. It's just seeking after control. You want to control an environment and you like controversy. You like the, you're a pugilist and you like fighting. Paul also says to avoid genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And all these things have kind of a, a Jewish flavor to them. 
it looks as though there were some Jews in Crete who were still trying to to add their their Jewish heritage genealogies or mosaics mosaic ceremonial laws to the finished work of Christ. And Paul says all these things are unprofitable and they're worthless. And he says they're so worthless that if someone has a bad case of this division disease, they need to have a Matthew 18 style church discipline performed on them. You warn them once and twice and then they're out of the church. They have condemned themselves by their love of controversy. Here we see that when Paul says for us to be gentle, when he says for us to be courteous to all people, he's not saying to be a pushover. He's not saying uh, to let people run over you and embrace people no matter what they believe and no matter what their actions are. So being humble, being kind and gentle doesn't mean you don't defend the church against those who are seeking to disrupt its purity and its peace. Now, Paul doesn't just command these things. We also see a little example of Paul illustrating these things to us in his own life. If you look at at beginning in verse 12, 12 and 13, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. If you look there in verse 13, there's a man mentioned who, who you might recognize his name. That's Apollos. You guys heard of Apollos? In, in 1 Corinthians, Apollos is mentioned as someone whose ministry was, was loved above the Apostle Paul's ministry in the church. Uh, there were people in the church who wanted to kind of create this, this Paul versus Apollos in the ministry type of controversy. But seemingly Apollos and obviously Paul would not allow this controversy to exist. As Paul closes his letter uh, to Titus, he's showing us once again that he wants to be courteous and humble and encouraging towards the ministry of Apollos. He doesn't want controversy. He doesn't want division. Apollos has been set up against him by others, but he's not going to allow that. He wants peace in the church. So Paul is showing us how to honor God by remembering that other people and their ministries in the church are not competitions because we are all serving the same master and same king. And all the prophets and advances that your brother has in his ministry are going to the same Lord. So there's no need to be divisive. Now, If we find it hard to be humble, if we find it difficult to avoid foolish divisions, if we find it hard to be courteous to all people, Paul wants to remind us of what we would be if courtesy had not been shown to us by God. And this brings us to our third point. Courtesy was shown towards you. Beginning in verse 3, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why are we to do good works? Why are we to show courtesy and meekness and humility towards all people? Not to earn our salvation, not so that we can have a holiness competition with our brothers and sisters. We do it because of the gospel, because we have partaken of the gospel. The knowledge of your old identity should drive you to live according to your new identity. Have you guys ever heard the saying that sharing the gospel is like, let's see if I get this right, it's like a beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. You guys heard that before? Okay. That's, that's good. That's a good illustration. But I'd like you to make it a little more accurate. I would say it's more like a prince who used to be a beggar inviting another beggar to come and live with him in the palace of the king who adopted him. When you are adopted out of your poverty, when you're taken to live in the house of the king, your response to his kindness should not be to elevate yourself above the other beggars. I am better than you all now. No. You are supposed to emulate the love and kindness of the one who showed you kindness. You are supposed to want all those beggars because there's plenty of room in the house of the king to come in and partake of that wonderful relationship of being a child of Jesus Christ. In verses 4 to 7, Paul shows us how in spite of our sin, God saved us. He says that your good works had nothing to do with it. This is what you produced to the ingredients of the salvation stew. It's a bad illustration, but you produced, you added hatred, disobedience, foolishness, malice, sinful passions. That's not the ingredients for salvation. God's sifting that stuff out. God is the one who is completely the generator of your salvation. Paul says, but the goodness of God appeared in our Savior, Jesus, who was perfect from eternity past, did not consider himself too good to become a man and die for your sins. Think about that. He didn't think he was too good to come down somebody who was kind and gentle from all eternity past. If he who was perfect, he who was good and kind from all eternity was willing to come down and show kindness and courtesy to wretches like us, how could we not do the same for those out there? 
Now I know it's a balancing act, living in the world and not being of the world. There is a sense in which you need to protect yourself from ideas and influences, especially with your children. But I have to ask us this heart question. Are we circling the wagon so much in, in order to protect ourselves from the unclean things out there that we are not giving the world any opportunities to see our good works? If Jesus had stayed home in his holy huddle, we would have never experienced the kindness and salvation of our God. Let me take a moment to address something that, that I fear could be becoming a problem in the church at large today. We are faced with perhaps some of the most heinous acts of sin that any church of any age has faced. We're exposed to expose some of the most ridiculous thinking and a culture that seems to be heavily manufacturing the business of teaching a whole generation of people to reject God. And it's hard to not take that personal, right? Don't you kind of feel that's like a personal attack? Now, I might be overstating this case. There might be other churches and other generations that have had it worse. But I know that you probably feel this. You probably feel like we are being attacked in ways that no other church in history has ever been attacked. But here's the danger. Are we so afraid of the influence that sinners could have on ourselves and on our children that we have lost our compassion for them. Let me use the, the very non-controversial topic of gender dysphoria. Not controversial, right? Probably not, even, probably not even correct for me to call it dysphoria. Our children are being fed this idea that if they feel like they're a different gender... In some cases, if they feel like they're an animal, I think they call those furries, uh, that everyone around them must affirm that belief. And if you don't, you are not just hateful, but you are immoral. Right? And those of you who have been, who have been around long enough to see the, the thinking of objective truth leave the cultural stage, probably see it more than anybody else. But people don't think objectively anymore. It's all subjective. So that makes it very difficult to combat against this lie. Because I have a truth that's different from your truth. There's no, no right or wrong outside of us. It's all inside of us. So it, it's, it's difficult to fight against. But here's my question for us. When you see a teacher or a young adult, or a teenager, or maybe even a child who is embracing this lie, do we make them so much the enemy in our hearts that we cease to have pity for them? Are we doing that? These people are image bearers of our God. I don't care what they identify as. They are image bearers of our God. And we should mourn the fact that they are embracing these lies. Now, I know there's a, there's a sense in which theologically and biblically 
like Clark said, they're willingly embracing this sin and, and they want this sin. But there's also a sense in which they are all the victims of the lies of Satan. And there was a time in our lives when we were believers and promoters of lies. I know that I was. And if we, who have the truth, who can give them hope in something beyond the confusion and delusions of this world, remove ourselves from their presence, what hope will they ever have? Now, in conclusion, I have to ask first, do you know the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior? Are you living in malice, stuck in the passions of this world, hating and being hated? If so, there is a Savior who can rescue you from all of that hopelessness. He's not looking for your works. He doesn't want you to wash yourself up and clean yourself up before you come to him. That's his job. He will clean you up, but he will take you right where you are in whatever condition you're in. All you have to do is cry out to him. He's ready to save you. And Christian, have you gradually embraced the lie that you are better than unbelievers because of some goodness that you generated? Have you forgotten from where Christ has brought you? Do you feel the need to be right in our culture wars to the extent that you have lost all compassion for those who are blind in the world? If so, you need to be reminded of the negative side of the gospel, which is what Paul says when he describes us as, you once were, you once were all these things that those people are now. Now, in saying that, I don't want you to go too far, because you should have what I call Christ-esteem, You should believe that you are who you are in Christ and you need to balance the the reminder that kills your pride of who you used to be with the reminder of who you are now elevated in Christ Jesus. And to help me balance this a little bit, I'm going to quote a great Baptist pastor, Alistair Begg. He says, If we do not find our assurance in the gospel then we will seek our assurance in our lifestyle or our assurance in how many beneficial things we've done. And we create others around us who feel the same way. And then your church is marked with sort of, he says, like a scorecard. There's a scorecard in the back that everybody's looking at to see what have I done to increase my standing in Christ, and that's where my assurance lies. But this is what he says. In Christ... Your worst week does not move you one iota from the center of God's grace. And in Christ, your best week does not increase your standing in Christ. So as you recognize your need as a follower of Christ to be ready for every good work, remember that the purpose of those works are not to increase your standing with Christ. 
That can't be increased or decreased. Christ's standing is perfect. And remember that one of the purposes of your good works is to show a lost world that Jesus can take someone who was a slave to their passions, someone who loved malice, someone who was hated and being hated, and he can clean that person and produce good works from them and turn them into a person that has a desire for those who were lost to embrace the beauty of their Savior. Amen.